Chapter 6. Jesus alone possesses divine rights. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19.15. When nations refuse to acknowledge God's rule, God equals Theos, rule equals Kratos, meaning God's universal government, he promises sure judgment. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Homage to the Son has reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his written word. Jesus instructed his disciples to make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28:19. Jesus' great commission will result in the nations paying homage to him, the Son, by observing all he commanded, verse 20. Who is a king? In the Bible, the king is the one who lays down the law. He possesses the sovereign authority to require all those under his jurisdiction to obey. He tells them what they are allowed to do, and then he polices their behavior. The heavenly king is the only king who lays down the law to all men and who is present with all men always to see if they obey. In the Old Testament, God did not reserve his commandments for just the nation of Israel and the church. Scripture makes it clear that all kings in Israel were to copy the law in the presence of the Levitical priest so that the rulers would be careful to observe every word of the law, Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19. Even nations outside Israel were required to follow the law as it was given to the nation Israel. This is a controversial statement. If the nations of the Old Testament world were supposed to obey God's civil law, then it becomes more difficult to argue that nations of the New Testament world are not under the same obligation. But what is the evidence that the nations in the Old Testament were to be governed by God's law? The best evidence is this. God judged them. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they broke the law of God, Genesis 13.13. God commanded the prophet Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, Assyrians, because their wickedness had come up before God, Jonah 1.2. The reason is clear. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native. For I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 24.22. The prophet Amos set forth the coming judgment of God to Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. These non-Israelite nations stood accountable for their transgressions. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, Amos 1.3.6.9.13.2.1. Non-Israelite nations were to be judged along with Judah and Israel, Amos 2, 4, and 6. There is one law and one lawgiver. The one who gives the law is the sovereign Lord of history, all of history, not just Israel's history and not just the church's history. The Law Established The New Testament shows a similar emphasis, as we should expect. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. We must not adopt the two gods view of history with a mean, evil, tyrannical God in the Old Testament and a sweet, kind, devil may care, but I don't God of the New Testament. God does not change, Malachi 3.6. Therefore, his law does not change, Matthew 15.17-20. Though Christians do not make blood sacrifices as remissions for sins, we do keep his Old Testament law in Christ. We take Holy Communion, in which the wine becomes the sacrificial equivalent of his blood. The Bible states that all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 Compare Leviticus 17.11 
Shed blood is still required, but Jesus became our perfect and final sacrifice for sins. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26 All ceremonial law, laws applied to the redemptive work of Christ are fulfilled when an individual repents of his sins and unconditionally surrenders himself to Jesus. The redemptive work of Jesus does not free us from an obligation to keep the moral and civil laws laid down in the Bible, however. Scripture shows no instance of an individual, Christian, or pagan who is free to ignore these laws. We are freed from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, but not from the guidance of the law. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law, Romans 3.31. Of course, the non-Christian is free neither from the curse of the law nor from its demands. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, John 3.18. Turmoil that reaches our newspaper headlines can be traced to repudiating the saving work of Jesus Christ and denying his law as a standard for the nations. Man first sinned by rejecting the absolute government of God. Adam and Eve attempted to interpret life by their own standards. What is true for individuals is multiplied for the nations. Christianity threatens all totalitarian regimes because the Christian citizen ultimate allegiance belongs to God who rules all earthly kingdoms, and who calls those who rule to rule according to law set forth in scripture, rather than written by the whims of men. Daniel's prophetic dream depicted the character of nations that opposed the ordinance of God and their eventual destruction. The kingdoms were humanistic, anthropocentric, man-centered kingdoms. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue of a man, Daniel 2.31. God brought an end to man's attempt to rule without his saving work and law structure by crushing the Colossus. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. Verse 35. The Conflict Over Kingship The Roman Empire presents a classic historical example of the messianic man-centered state, of the denial of God's law, and of the implementation of humanistic law. The Caesars declared themselves gods, and their decrees were acknowledged as the laws of gods. Because of each Caesar's false claim of divinity, his limited reign was threatened by God's unlimited and universal reign. Peter declared confidently, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The gospel of Jesus Christ, with its claim of divine prescriptions, threatened the very nature of the Roman state. Rome had to submit itself to the position of minister under God or be crushed by the power of God. Rome did not submit. Early Christians were accused of acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, Acts 17.7. There is no evidence that the early church advocated that people act contrary to the prevailing law system, except when those laws prohibited them from worshiping and evangelizing. However, those who heard the disciples preach understood the implications of Jesus Christ's demands. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, then even the state must submit to his authority and rule. No middle or neutral ground exists. Jesus' words make it clear that only one master can claim absolute authority. 
no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6.24 The state and God cannot both be the absolute sovereign. One must submit to the other. Obviously, the state must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ or perish in its attempt to overthrow his rule. Any attempt by the nations to oppose the rule of God is an act of futility. God laughs at and scorns their attempts to overthrow the advancing kingdom of Christ. Compare Psalm 2. The Lord reigns, declares scripture. Notice that the reign of God is comprehensive. It knows no geographical limitation. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, Psalm 96.10. God's reign is not limited to the nation Israel. Every nation is responsible to acknowledge the reign of God. Any attempt to deny God's reign will be met with judgment. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Psalm 2, 1 through 5. The fact of God's reign terrifies those who seek to free themselves from his rightful position as the reigning monarch of all creation. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with tremblings, verses 10 through 11. No nation can claim the exclusive title reserved for the Messiah of God. All civil governments are subordinate to God and are under his jurisdiction. The Bible makes it clear that the government, the absolute reign of God, rests upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is not a future reign, but a present reality. The promise of government by the Messiah is realized at his birth. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Isaiah 9, 6. Notice that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Verse 7. God then removes any nation standing in the way of the increase of the Messiah's government. The nations do not influence God's decisions on how he will evaluate them. The nations are in God's hands, and he controls them. Their conspiratorial desires to manipulate other nations are vain. Even Israel, God's chosen nation, is not favored when evaluated in terms of God's holy character. Because of Israel's disobedience, Jesus states that the kingdom will be taken from Israel and will be given to the Gentiles, that is, the true nation of Israel, Matthew 21, 33-46, compare Romans 9, 6-8. Isaiah describes the perspective we need when considering the actions of the nations. They are nothing more than a drop in the bucket and dust on the scales compared to the grandeur, glory, and holiness of God, Isaiah 40:15. King by nature. Jesus Christ is king because of who he is. Jesus has not overthrown another king to make his claim. He is king legally. God the Father has decreed him to be king. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, Psalm 2.6. God has anointed and sealed him to his regal office. God has set the crown upon his head. Jesus has a kingly title. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Revelation 17, 14, 19, 16. He bears the ensigns of royalty, a crown, Hebrew 2, 9, a sword, Revelation 1, 16, 2, 16, a scepter, Hebrews 1, 8, 
a coat of arms, Revelation 5.5. He is called the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. It is by him that kings reign, Proverbs 8.15. His throne is everlasting, Hebrews 1.8. Even the angels worship him. And let all the angels of God worship him, Hebrews 1.6. He is the center of all person, family, church, group, organization, or nation does. He is God, the creator and preserver of the universe, John 1.1, Colossians 1.17. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.2. Confession. Because all actions originate in the heart, Mark 7.20-23, James 4.1, acknowledging Jesus Christ as king must also begin in the heart. His kingdom is spiritual. He rules first in the hearts of men. This does not mean that he does not rule from on high, but the manifestation of his rule is supposed to be in deep. He sets up his throne where no earthly king does, in men's hearts. His sword, the word of God, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. No nation can survive unless Jesus Christ is acknowledged as king and its citizens embrace him as such personally. The Bible emphasizes that all people are Christ's subjects in a variety of ways. First, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the necessity of a new birth, a comprehensive transformation of the entire individual, John 3, 5-7. Man is not considered sick. He is considered sinful. The unregenerate sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. Only the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit can make a dead man live. The fundamental issue is ethical, not medical or psychological. Second, the written word of God is acknowledged as the only rule of faith and practice. Law is not found in the vote of the people, the decree of the courts, or pronouncement of rulers. The law of God is Christ the King's law. Therefore, it must be obeyed. Moreover, being set free in Jesus Christ liberates neither citizen nor ruler from the guidance, obligations, and benefits of the law, Romans 3.31. Only from the final curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. The consequences of broken law are well established, Deuteronomy 28.15-68. Third, the regenerate mind is renewed, Romans 12.2. Every individual operates from a particular view of the world and mind and evaluates all life from this perspective, meaning his chosen religious presuppositions. Prior to acknowledging Christ as king, all life is seen from man's perspective. For as he, man, thinks within himself, so he is. Proverbs 23.7 The new creature in Christ should evaluate life from the perspective of the word of God, thinking God's thoughts after him taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Fourth, those who do not want Jesus as king will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful, Revelation 17.14. Separate jurisdictions. The Bible reveals that the jurisdiction of the state and the jurisdiction of the church are to be separate. Though the separation is not absolute, the word of God transcends any absolute wall of separation some may seek to erect. For this reason, civil servants are often given religious titles. The king in Israel was the Lord's anointed set apart for a civil task in the same way the priest was set apart and anointed for his ecclesiastical religious task. Numbers 3.3 David, who was to replace Saul as the Lord's anointed, respected the special office of the king. Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord Saul, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed, 1 Samuel 24, 6. Those subordinates who served 
with David also enjoyed religious titles. His chief officers were called priests, 2 Samuel 8.18. These were not temple priests or Levites. They were comparable to ministers of Romans 13.4. The reason for the title priest is not immediately evident until we understand that these priests in their governmental role were to give counsel to the king. Only the title of priest was significant enough to give these counselors' role the importance it deserved. They were to counsel the civil minister in godly law and actions. The New Testament emphasizes a similar title for for all rulers by designating them as ministers of God, Romans 13, 4, and 6. King of all the nations. Even outside Israel, rulers were given religious titles for civil functions. Cyrus is given the title of shepherd. This title is usually reserved for God himself, Isaiah 40:11, compare John 10, and the rulers of Israel, Jeremiah 23:4. But God calls a non-Israelite my shepherd, Isaiah 44:28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform my desire. Cyrus is given an even more significant title. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. 45.1. The high priest in Israel and the kings are designated in the same way. Of course, it is the title for the coming deliverer, the Messiah. Hence, the rulers of the nations are given titles, which clearly indicate that they are considered by God's word to be ministers of God. Compare Romans 13, 4, and 6. Such special designation of shepherd and anointed tell us that even those rulers who do not seek to govern according to the law of God are still obligated to function in that capacity. Moreover, they will be held responsible for their actions. The written word of God is to be the standard for the king's rule. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Be carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. The king, as well as his people, come under God's law. The Divine Right of God Alone No biblical divine right of kings, in which the king was a law unto himself, existed in Israel. To possess such a divine right means that your actions are autonomous. No one can appeal to a higher court for justice. The idea of the divine right of kings was challenged with great force three centuries ago by Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian minister who served as a commissioner at Westminster Abbey in London and rector of St. Andrew's Church in Scotland. His book, Lex Rex caused enough controversy to have him placed under house arrest and held for possible execution. Summoned to appear before Parliament at Edinburgh, he died before he could comply with the order. The divine right of kings was a 17th century's version of judicial humanism. It placed the king under God, but there was no human institution to call him to account. Thus, the divine right of kings under God became a theory justifying the autonomy of the king from any other human jurisdiction. It made the king the civil manifestation of God walking on earth. There could, in theory, be no appeal beyond the king to God by means of any rival institution. But the theory claimed too much for the king, and it sparked a revolution. By the end of the century in England, this theory regarding kings was tossed into to the historical dustbin. 
the glorious revolution of 1688 transferred the mythical divine right of kings to parliament. Nine decades later, the American Revolution broke out in opposition to parliaments taking seriously its own stolen theory. One purpose of the civil law in the Old Testament was to see to it that the king's heart may not be lifted above his countrymen. Verse 20. Citizens and king are to serve the same law. King Solomon prayed for an understanding heart to judge God's people and to discern between good and evil, 1 Kings 3.9. Solomon's standard of right and wrong was the Bible. Only when he ignored scripture did judgment come to his kingdom. This is no less true in the New Testament, where Jesus is one with the Lord who gave Moses the law, John 10.30, and said that we are to keep his commandments, John 14.15, By keeping Jesus' commandments, we are keep the commandments of God, for Jesus is God, John 1.1. 1, 1. God's standard for justice is the same for all his creatures. This includes nations that consider this, themselves non-Christian. Some people believe that because they do not acknowledge God as Lord and King, they somehow are exempt from following the law of God. Sodom and Gomorrah enjoyed no such exemption. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against God, Genesis 13.13. 13. This wicked city was destroyed for breaking God's law, in particular, the sin of homosexuality, Genesis 19, 4-5, Leviticus 18, 22, 20, and 13. Jonah went to preach to the non-Israelite city of Nineveh because of their sins. If the Ninevites were not obligated to keep the law of God, then how could they be expected to repent, Jonah 3? The stranger and individual outside the covenant community must obey the law of God. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as for the native. For I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 24.22, compare Numbers 15.16, Deuteronomy 1.16-17. Jesus alone possesses divine rights. The law, as given to Israel, was a standard for nations surrounding Israel. When other nations heard of the righteous judgments within Israel, these nations remarked with wonder, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, Deuteronomy 4.6. The psalmist proclaims to the kings and judges of the earth to take warning and worship the Lord with reverence and do homage to the Son, Psalm 2.10-11. Quite frequently, the other nations are called upon in the psalms to honor God. The prophets insisted that the nation surrounding Israel would respond to his threat of historical judgment. God does not exempt other nations from the requirements of his righteousness. He holds them responsible for their sins. Amos 1, 3 through 2, 5. The New Testament Emphasis The New Testament presupposes the moral order laid down in what we call the Old Testament. John the Baptist used the law of God to confront Herod in his adulterous affair. Herod had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodotus, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Mark 6, 17, 18, Leviticus 20, 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22. This was not mere advice. John lost his own head in the exchange. In Romans 13, the civil magistrate is termed a minister of God who has the responsibility and authority to punish evildoers. As God's servants, these rulers must rule God's way. Just as minister in the church is obligated to implement the law of God as it touches on ecclesiastical matters, a civil servant must implement the law of God in civil affairs. 
the determination of good and evil must derive from some objective standard. In Hebrews 5.14, the Christian is instructed to train his senses to discern good and evil. In Romans 13.4, the civil authorities are to wield the sword, punishing evildoers and promoting the good. God certainly does not intend the standard of good and evil to be simply whatever a ruler autonomously desires or thinks it ought to be. The standard of good and evil is nothing less than that which the creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge of heaven and earth ordains, decrees, and declares it to be the revealed word and law of God. The psalmist declares he will speak of thy testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed, Psalm 119.46. These testimonies are the commandments that he loves, verse 47. Jesus informs his disciples that persecution will give them opportunity to speak before governors and kings as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, Matthew 10:18. Civil servants approach John the Baptist regarding their obligation to the law of God. Some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Luke 3, 13-14. John was not appealing to them on the basis of some neutral law, but referred to the 6th, ninth, and 10th commandments of the Decalogue, though he did not name them as such. An incident in Jesus' ministry shows that the biblical laws of restitution are in force for tax theft. Zacchaeus, an unscrupulous tax collector, followed the laws of restitution by promising to pay back those he defrauded. If I have defrauded anyone anything, I will give back four times as much. Luke 19.8, compare Exodus 22.1, Leviticus 6.5. Christians are obligated to inform those who rule of the demands of the law and the consequences of disobedience. There is no area of life where man is exempt from the demands of the law of God. Blessings and curses. Because God's laws are a standard for all nations, consequences of disobedience affect pagan nations as well as godly nations. External blessings accrue to societies that conform to the laws of God, and there are curses for those societies that fail to conform externally to these laws. Deuteronomy 28, 1-68. The laws of God that relate to blessings and curses are operative for all peoples. The prophet Amos made this clear when he denounced the nation surrounding Israel. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab incurred the curses of Deuteronomy 28.15-63, Amos 1.3.2.5. Those judges who fail to render verdicts according to the absolute standard of the law of God will die like men and fall like anyone of the princes, Psalm 82.7. The Levites stood before the people to remind them of their sins and the reason for God's judgment on their nation. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept the law or paid attention to thy commandments and thine admonitions, which thou hast admonished them. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which thou didst give to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it. Nehemiah 9, 34, 36. Slavery, in which even our bodies are ruled by despotic leaders, verse 37, is the result of a nation's failure to keep the commandments of God. Breaking God's commandments means transgressors 
and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. Isaiah 128. Harlotry, injustice, murder, theft, taking bribes, and afflicting the helpless are results of a nation's repudiating the laws of God for the laws of men, humanism. Even the greatest kings of the world will be reduced to dust if they fail to honor God's law. Daniel 2, 31-35 On one of the most sobering judgments of God is the one that falls on Herod for his humanistic government. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. Acts 12, 21-23 God in his providence appoints and deposes all rulers. He, therefore, is never surprised about the development of the nations because the heads of foreign powers are his servants. For example, Pharaoh, Romans 9.17, Herod and Pilate, Acts 4.25, were raised up by God to do God's will. The psalmist says that God puts down one and exalts another, Psalm 75.7. God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar surely are the most revealing actions of sovereignty brought upon an earthly ruler. Daniel acknowledges the sovereignty of God in the appointment and removal of kings by stating that God changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel 2.21 The rule and authority that men in power enjoy come from the gracious hand of God. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel 4.17 Nebuchadnezzar was reminded of his rightful position as a ruler under God. 4.25.32 When the king comes to his senses, God returns the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. 436. This great lesson was not remembered, however. Some years later, Belshazzar's mockery of God's rule, compare 5, 2 through 4, brought sudden destruction, but not before Daniel reminded him of the nature of his sovereignty. O King, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. 516. Belshazzar's kingdom was numbered, weighed, divided, and given by God. Verses 25 through 28. Summary. The sixth basic principle in the biblical blueprint for civil government is that the lordship of Jesus Christ is universal. There are no exemptions from God's service. There is no king's X for human kings. One of the greatest lies ever fostered in the church is that Jesus is king of the church, but not of the state. The law of God is valid for individual believers but non-Christians are supposedly not required to keep it. The nations are supposedly under their own jurisdiction, an assertion of their autonomy, self-law. The nations supposedly do not have to keep the law of God unless they wish to. God supposedly does not hold them accountable. Suppose, 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 the theory is all supposition and no fact. It is a lie perpetuated by the devil and his minions. If it were true, then it would mean that men around the world can break God's law and get away with it. Or, if his law does not bind them, then this theory means that God is not sovereign over the nations. Legal theory of all societies recognize this principle. No law, no authority. No law, no sovereignty. Those who argue that God's law does not apply are in principle denying the sovereign rule of God. This must be Satan's favorite lie. It is certainly one of the most successful lies in Christian circles.
You cannot come away from reading of the Bible with the conclusion that the nations are exempt from the commandments of God. If the nations are exempt as long as they do not submit to Jesus as their king, then how will they be held accountable on judgment day? According to this new theology, there is no accountability. The atrocities of despots from the beginning of time are off the hook. Our country's foreign policy makes it evident that we have forsaken the gospel for the nations. When is the last time, let alone the first time, that you heard that what our foreign policy really needs is the claims of Jesus Christ? Do our ambassadors call the Russians, the, the Czechs, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Iranians, the Poles, and the Jews to surrender unconditionally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? My friends, this is the only hope for the world. God will not honor our supposed religious neutrality for long. God establishes nations by his eternal decree. All nations are accountable to God and his law. When God is rejected as the king, false king messiahs claim to be saviors of the people. The state and God cannot claim to be the ultimate sovereign. All conspiratorial designs of men and nations are doomed to fail. Jesus is king of kings because of who and what he is. For nations to submit to Jesus as king, the gospel must be preached and the word of God proclaimed as law. Both church and state are obligated to keep the law of God. The state cannot exempt itself from keeping the commandments of God except at its own peril. There is a jurisdictional separation between church and state but not a religious separation. Jesus is king of all the nations. There is no divine right of kings. The New Testament repeats the fact that Jesus is ruler of the nations. There are blessings and curses attached to obedience and disobedience. In summary, 1. God promises to bring judgment against nations that ignore his law. 2. New Testament nations are as bound by God's law as Old Testament nations were. 3. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. 4. The redemptive work of Christ has not freed us from obedience to God's law. 5. God's law threatens totalitarian nations. 6. God destroys all rival earthly kingdoms. 7. The Roman Empire fell because it opposed God and his church. 8. The earthly Christians were persecuted because they claimed that Christ was sovereign over all kings. 9. The state and God cannot both be equally sovereign. 10. The government rests on Christ's shoulders. 11. Christ is king legally. 12. The confession that Jesus is Lord must begin in the heart. 13. The jurisdictions of church and state are separate. 14. The civil magistrate is called by names that denote a religious function, priest, minister. 15. Only God possesses divine rights. 16. Divine rights means not being subject to a legal appeal for one's actions. 17. In the past, king and parliaments have claimed divine rights. 18. This doctrine leads to tyranny. 19. God alone is king. 20. The New Testament says that all magistrates are under God's kingship. 21. God's law rules magistrates, and they are supposed to rule their subjects in terms of God's law. 22. Armed with God's law, the earthly church challenged the state. 23. The Levites were to warn kings against transgressing God's law. 24. Slavery results when rulers ignore God's law. 25. God still appoints all rulers.